Welcome to Emil Franzink's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. That's just a truism that you cannot, uh, you, you can't deny it, <laughs> because it is true. Welcome to another edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander. With me on the phone is Bunker de France, and the reason he's on the phone is because I'm at the East Side Ranch. He's on the West Side, and well, we'd be having to start. And the creek is risen, and we can't get across. We'd have to start at midnight to meet up in the middle. Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, Todd Roberts. Howdy, Todd. Ah, uh, gentlemen, and, so good to be with you. And our guest is we're kicking off a wonderful holiday season here, Christmas season. Peter Billingsley, Todd Roberts, please introduce our guest. Well, uh, I don't think there's any uh, male uh, between the ages of uh, 25 and 100 who don't know what a Red Rider BB gun is. And Peter got the great honor and distinction to be, uh, shall I say, channel all of our fantasies and get to get a Red Rider BB gun in a movie and play the ultimate young cowboy hero uh, who gets the gun and, uh, you know, just lives that fantasy. Beyond that, he's also an accomplished actor and producer and is very active. But for all of us stuck in a time warp, uh, Peter's Peter's our hero. We have we have a we we pray to the altar of Peter Billingsley. <laughs> All right, Peter. How about Be careful? That? You can shoot your eye out. Be careful. <laughs> Goodness, I, I, I will say I've had a lot of introductions on radio and television. Never quite one like that. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, you, you'll, pro- you'll probably never do another radio show again after yeah. this one. <laughs> and the good news and the good news for you, Peter, is. Um, uh, and we're we're doing this sh- show totally sober, so yeah. you know that's that makes it really unique. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, well it makes I, it am unique. Blind, I am blind and, drunk, so we'll see how this yeah. goes. It makes it, it makes it every time, and I can yeah. hear the ice in the glass. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it makes it unique, not for for us. Uh, it, it well, no, it, it not for you, but for us because we never do it sober. Yeah, right. But there you have it. Well, I'll yeah. give you a so. tip. You got to hit the mute button when you shake those ice cubes. Oh, that's how that works. I oh, wondered okay. what that damn well, button was no, for. If somebody could put uh, invent ice cubes, I could felt on them or something so that it didn't rattle. That would really be cool. Yeah, might be. Anyway, let's get to the meat of the program here. Mr. Billingsley, uh, you started out very young in your acting yeah. career. Uh, t- talk about that. I did. I started um, at about two and a half years old and did not come from an entertainment family. Uh, we were living in New York City at the time. It was in the early 1970s, and my mom just, uh, I don't know, it was a very different business back then. It wasn't quite, you know, you didn't have child stars making tremendous amounts of money or kind of brands, and mm-hmm. there's obviously no social media, so she thought it might be fun to get in a commercial or two, something to talk about when you were growing up, maybe something for the scrapbook. Mm-hmm. That was really that was really sort of where the bar was, but I guess I kind of had an aptitude for it. Things sort of took off. I started doing a lot of commercials quickly, hmm. and then that well, slowly grew into television and film. Hmm. Bunker, you know, you know, it's interesting. It was five of you, and all five of you uh, started out as child actors, and only you and Melissa have seemed to continue on. 
What do you continue? One of the things I think you're probably a child genius because I was reading up on you here, and wow. <laughs> well, yeah, there were five kids in our family, and as I started to work myself and my brother did a little bit, all the kids kind of popped in and tried it. You know, as I said, it was there's never anything that you hear the stories of families pressuring kids to go out and earn or, you know, to to try to bring some kind of awareness to the family. It was really kind of fun. And so it was it was really set up in a way that, you know, really the rule from my parents was if you enjoy doing it and we can make it work, we'll do it. Hmm. Uh, if you don't like doing it, then stop. And so I just think, cool. you know, I kind of really liked it. My sister, Melissa, did um, worked a lot as well. My brother was on a soap opera for a while. So it, it, it's a very strange thing that kind of fell into our family where we all found some joy in it. And then mm. I really made it my livelihood. Um, and it's, you know, still, God, I've been filing a tax return now <laughs> as someone in the entertainment business for 50 years. <laughs> yeah. I want to wow. know, though, your first acting role was in a Geritol commercial as a yes. two-year-old. Uh, yeah. What does a two-year-old do do taking Geritol? That's, yeah. Well, unfortunately, I wasn't the one taking it. But my mom was Betty, Betty Buckley, if you remember, Betty was the mother on Eight is Enough and did a lot of great work. She also did Cats on Broadway. And she stood there with a bunch of kids around her and said, you know, when you have kids like these, you need to take Geritol twice a day. <laughs> and I do remember, it's very interesting because I have memories probably about four or five, but I do have a memory of that day on the set. And I was really terrified of the camera because it's this big, especially mm -hmm. back then, those film cameras <laughs> mm -hmm. with the magazines on top. Yeah. It was pointing at me and I had a truck. It was just kind of, they just said, stand there and play with the truck and just, you know, that's all you need to do. But I threw the truck at the camera and uh, that caused, <laughs> I got an immediate reaction. And I remember the director came over. He was, this was very good. He'd worked with kids, and he said, "All right, now." He said, "You know, we can't do that." Uh, he said, "You know, what do you like?" I said, "I don't, I don't know. I like candy." So he kind of snapped his fingers, and they ran over some candy. And uh, boy, I'm sure I was getting paid probably much more than a few pieces of candy for the day rate. But that calmed me down. I was happy. I stood there all day, <laughs> got to eat candy between takes, and I thought, "Hey, this is a pretty good gig. Yeah. So I get a little candy out of this. I'm happy to do it." <laughs> Did you have a feeling of megalomaniac power when you could just command candy like that? <laughs> Probably on a certain level, yes. As you get older, you do become aware of it. And it's, uh, I think, goes back to that tenet of, hey, we're doing this for fun. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I have a great dad. Fortunately, he's still with me. You know, very good, good tough dad, strong, loving mom. And it was a nice balance in the house to to be able to be disciplined, um, you know, and and loved at the same time. So I have to ask you, Peter, uh, what was it when you did the NASA commercial? Did you get to meet President Reagan? I didn't. So I was um, I was a spokesperson for an organization called the Young Astronaut Program. This was in the 1980s. And um, it was a kind of big program that was working with schools to encourage studying math and science. I think at the time it was, that was the competition with Japan, you know, and it was sort of a lot of Americans were talking about the sort of lack, lack of aptitude of American youth in math and science. And 
you know, space was kind of booming and technology was coming to the forefront. And so I was a spokesperson for that. And this was right around the time of the Challenger. And so Kristen McAuliffe was the teacher that was selected, obviously, to go up into the Challenger. Mm -hmm. And when she was to have landed, we had a big national press tour that was planned for us to kind of go out and speak to the benefit of studying math and science. So I went to, uh, was invited down to the launch site. Uh, and I was there with a lot of the press, a lot of the folks, and um, was there on the launch pad, sort of that furthest launch pad that you can be out. And obviously, tragedy struck that day. And I immediately flew back to Phoenix, where I was living at the time, and I got a phone call that night that said, you need to go on television in the morning. And I thought, okay. Um, and they said, you know, someone has to put kind of a, a spin on this. And I, I mean, I was, I don't know, 14 years old or something at the time, or younger maybe, um, and said, all right, and said, I was speaking to Jack Anderson, who was a former columnist and writer, um, and he said, I just hung up with Reagan, and this is coming from him. Now, whether that's true or not, or he needed to <laughs> motivate me to get going, mm -hmm. I don't know. But that was sort of the word that had come down. Um, so I went on, I think it was the Today Show the following morning, um, with, um, I think with Gene and Pauly, and just kind of talked about, had some talking points about obviously recognizing the tragedy, but trying to move forward somewhat. And so that program... Um, did not last after that, but it was um, it was a very rare moment of time. Do you still follow? Well, I just got through looking at a picture of you and the other kids there at the launch and the excitement mm -hmm. and, and the energy that was there uh, when you guys' faces. And it's got to be a really uh, almost a, a memory you don't want to have seeing something like that. Mm -hmm. It's a surreal memory because they kind of give you advance warning. They said those rocket boosters are going to leave, so you're going to see an orange flash. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody kind of kept clapping and cheering, and then mm -hmm. there's a loudspeaker, and the loudspeaker said there's been a major malfunction. And it, you couldn't really hear it. Half the people heard it, and then it's one of those moments where everyone's yelling, calm down, calm down. And then it was quiet for a minute, and everyone was sort of looking at this loudspeaker waiting for some kind of news, and it said the vehicle has exploded. And it just sort of got quiet, some chaos erupted, and we all went back to the buses. It's a very vivid memory, for sure. Um, was grateful to have good people and good family around, but, you know, as, as say, sort of moderately traumatic as it were for me, a lot of people lost their lives that day and a lot of people lost family members. Yeah. So you get that in perspective quickly and, you know, my heart still goes out to all those who lost their lives. Do you still follow the space well, program in any way or uh, shape? Do I still follow it? Yeah. I think just kind of as, you know, somewhat of a casual observer or fan. I mean, it's, I don't think it, it didn't tarnish my... Mm -hmm. Um, like or love of it, I think as all kids, you know, astronauts in space are pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you kind of think of it that way. You know, I was um, certainly grateful to have been a part of it. I mean, it was, you know, prior to that, we were in Florida and they let us go through and 
see all the testing stations. I mean, it was the coolest thing as a kid to go through, a, you know, mm -hmm. a pool where they train all the anti-gravity stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they really allowed us access to some pretty incredible places. Wow. Well, moving into more happier times, uh, probably after, after Ralphie, uh, you're very well known for Messy Marvin. What can you tell us about <laughs> Messy Marvin? Well, for those that know it, Messy Marvin was a character. It was Hershey syrup was the product. And I think that the concept of the ad campaign was it's so easy to make chocolate milk with Hershey syrup that even Messy Marvin can do it. Who messes up everything, right? His room, everything's a mess. But somehow this guy can figure it out because the squeeze bottle is so easy. So it's kind of an interesting one because um, when you hire kids, frequently, at least back then, you hire what's also called a backup. So you'd hire the primary kid who you wanted for the role, but you'd get a little bit of insurance and you'd bring a backup kid. That <laughs> backup kid was there just in case primary kid didn't work. And, um, you know, it was pretty rare that you would have to make the switch. So I was actually hired as the backup on that one. I wasn't their first choice, so we were there, and I do remember it seemed fairly simple, you know, you had to open the drawer, take some things out, whatever the spot called for, and I guess they just weren't happy with what they were getting, but hours were going by, and my mom was like, look, you're not going to use them, can we just go? You know, it's starting to get late, and they're like, all right, one more try, and finally they said, okay, you're in. <laughs> I, got, I got brought in off the bench, and, uh, ran in front of the camera and we got it quickly and it um you know all worked well and then i guess the commercials did so well i think we did seven or eight of them hmm. it, it turned into a campaign i mean they kept calling back and then they got crazier and crazier they, they had a flood one of them he caused a flood and they had a wall of water behind me that burst out of a wall like this it was getting crazy so they went on for a while and then I remember the, the ad executive called and said, well, you know, we're done. Thanks. We, we had a good run. And I said, well, you know, out of curiosity, why are they stopping? He said, well, Messy Marvin has become more popular than the product. And at this point, they are confusing it with Quick and Ovaltine. They don't even know what we're selling. Oh, so they're wow. like, it's not doing its purpose anymore. Wow. And I thought, oh, well, that's cool. <laughs> Oh, you're a perfect pilot for a series. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> totally true. So they really liked the character, but they were not paying attention to what the product was. Wow. So that that proves that voodoo dolls, yeah, right? <laughs> voodoo dolls work. Yeah, right? Voodoo dolls work. Well, this, is, uh, this, this points to why W.C. Fields had a very patent rule that he would not uh, share the screen with either animals or children. He said, because they always yeah. steal the scene, and there you have Peter doing exactly that. So, wow. Peter, I also have to ask you. Uh, well, look, you, you kudos to too. the creation of the character. It was a pretty fun, it was a pretty fun character to play. Right. But you, you were involved in two films that I find incredibly funny, incredibly funny. Four Christmases and also uh, Couples Retreat. Um, yes. Is there anything you want to share with us there? Well, Four Christmases, I mean, another great, you know, Christmas movie. I do a lot of Christmas movies. I love Christmas movies. Um, the rare PG-13 Christmas movie. Uh, but it's funny. I 
I'll tell you what I like. A lot of things I like. I think Vince and Reese are so good in that movie, and it's it's such a funny movie, such a great concept because you think of you know the idea that if two people are together and they both come from divorced families, there's four Christmases that you have to service right. that, that day. There's four families you have to go to. And it's like such a simple concept, but such a relatable, great one. And even if you don't, you have friends or you know people that come from that sort of. So I think it was, you know, one of those movies in the bucket of such a really smart concept. And um, it was it was a lot of fun to do because you are running kind of that needle thread of making a warm holiday movie that ends with those great emotional feelings and the messages of holidays of acceptance and forgiveness and family, but you get to shroud it in the PG 13 movie. So you can push the jokes a little bit more. Mm -hmm. You can make it edgier. You can have kind of a harder sense of humor. And you don't see a lot of Christmas movies that are that, because I think it can be a difficult balance. Mm -hmm. Sure. Interesting. All right. We got to do our first commercial break here on Amo Franzi's Voices of the West. We are talking with Peter Billingsley. You'll remember him from A Christmas Story. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that after these very important commercial announcements here on Amo Franzi's Voices of the West. Stay tuned. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and a hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. This is Eb Wilkinson at Wilkinson Wealth Management. If you're within 10 to 15 years of retirement and you're putting off retirement planning, my advice to you is don't do that. Ignoring your retirement planning won't make it go away. It'll just make it worse. Give me a call and let's work on your plan together so you can retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Watch Old West silent movies anytime at voicesofthewest.net. We all make promises. Big and small. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I do solemnly swear to help you when you are in need. To be considerate and caring. To be your loving, faithful friend, partner, child, parent, neighbor. One of our most important commitments is to support our nation's veterans. Learn how you can help a veteran going through a difficult time by visiting maketheconnection.net. I think you two better go to the door ahead of me. You might find my back too much of a temptation. This is the Voices of the West. 
stars are bright and the snow is white on the trail I ride along and I sing a theme of a wrangler's dream it's a cowboy Christmas song Welcome back to Amo Franzi's Voices of the West Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts with you And uh, our guest is Peter Billingsley You remember him from the movie A Christmas Story Peter, how did, uh, how did you come to get that particular part of Ralphie? Yeah, I, I, I was uh, 12 years old at the time and, you know, had gone through commercials and had done a couple of smaller films and then a couple of movies, did a Burt Reynolds movie called Paternity, a movie directed by John Schlesinger called Honky Tonk, releasing bigger movies that didn't really perform. I think there were high hopes for them. And then got this audition. At that time, there would be multiple auditions, sometimes, you know, three or four in a day. Wow. So you prepare, you go in. And I went in and read for it and really didn't hear anything. I heard later that Bob Clark, the director, said that, you know, this is a movie that took about, it took Bob Clark and Gene Shepard about 12 years to get this movie made. Nobody wanted to finance it. It was a big challenge for them. They finally got it set up as a small budget movie. And he's got his first casting session, finally, after all this time. And the very first person who happened to be scheduled on that day to see him, of many, was me. Hmm. So I walk in, and he says, you know, I read, and he starts thinking to himself, oh, my gosh, this is the guy. <laughs> like, this is crazy. This is the guy. He's like, but there is no way I can hire the first person I see for this role. So I go off. I don't hear anything. And I'm thinking, all right, well, I guess I didn't get that one, which was normal because your ratios, you know, you're auditioning a lot. He goes off for, I don't know, two months, he says, and looks all over the country at just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids. And in the back of my mind, it just still keeps nagging that this first guy he saw felt like was a guy that he was looking for. for the mm. And that's often really what it comes down to. It's, you know, there's a lot of talented kids competing for a lot of parts mm-hmm. and you know a lot of it comes down to do you fit the vision of what that filmmaker is really looking for and so I did so I went up to Canada because they were prepping at the time up there we shot a good chunk of the movie up there and then we did a screen test where you mix and match as a kid you had to learn I had to learn like Flick um, Randy um, you know all these different parts Schwartz and then each kid does and they do these chemistry reads where mm-hmm. they rotate different kids maybe they brought up like a dozen of us mm-hmm. and then it whittles down and I wound up getting the role of Rousey and he told me that story later which I thought was really kind of wild How was it working with Darren McGavin? Oh it was it was awesome I mean I, I worked with a pretty good handful Wild dog, okay? <laughs> wild dog on the set. Wild dog on the set. Hey, that's all right. It really fits the Western theme. You got I the know. prairie dogs. You got the, <laughs> you got the dogs. Right the away. Union prairie dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell. 
he was making sure he got his lines That's in it, smart because yeah. now if he's on the radio now he's going to get the residuals, residuals. it's not it's not it's not his first show no, no, no. i would say the thing about darren you know he was he had obviously done some tremendous work leading up to that mm-hmm. and um i had never worked with someone who was in so so knowledgeable and in such command of every every department on set Hmm. Um, he had a beautiful intensity about him when he worked which you know he really brought and you can see and it it made it very easy to act with him Mm -hmm. but between takes he would you know a lot of us like to sit on the set and we kind of just stay in the frame while they're working and you'd overhear a couple of grips or something debating how to rig you know the door that was stuck and he just casually shoot over his shoulder, you know, why don't you just shim it from the back and use a little speed rail from the top? And they'd kind of <laughs> pause and look at him and then be like, yeah, that's exactly right. And then they'd go do it. He just, he was just so lovely and had so much knowledge of the environment and um, and was great. And, you know, I think you don't... Was, was sorry, he smoking... Was he still smoking those uh, awful French cigarettes at that time? It's entirely possible because I think at that time probably a lot of people were still smoking like those cigarettes. Yeah. yeah, that worked. That was it. Was it was eighty three? So I think you were still smoking in doctors' offices. Yeah, <laughs> smoking more in the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wherever. So, so when, when, when you get the role for this movie and they tell you what it is and it's a story of a boy who gets the who desperately wants a Red Ryder BB gun and then he gets the Red Ryder BB gun, were you aware of what that was? I mean, were you thinking, uh, oh, do I get to take this home after the show's over? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, BB gun culture was still, so we had moved to Arizona when I was about 10. And... Um, you know, we had some BB guns. I think my first gun was like a Daisy Pal. Um, and so, which is sort of the extension of the Red Rider. It's still like a, you know, it's an, it's an, it's sort of a cock spring, spring gun. It wasn't like those pump ones that we mm-hmm. got when we started to get older that could do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, it so Dale I, Robin, it was a Dale Evans, B, Dale Evans BB gun, the Pal. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> it was part of, I think, the culture. I didn't know to the extent that, at the time, I learned um, how kind of ingrained into American young boy culture, father to son passing down, that was. Um, but I certainly had an awareness of BB guns that I had one at the time. And you thought, yeah, I mean, I thought that was very cool. There were so many cool aspects about the movie that we're going to be really, really fun to do. Are you familiar with the uh, lore about the BP gun itself that they use? Because they actually, it was a kind of a combination of the Red Rider and the Buck Jones BB gun. And the Red Rider didn't have a compass, but yours had a compass. And they had to find a compass, and they found it. Somebody connected with the show happened to have one of the compasses on their desk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it, it, this, the sundial 
in the compass and the stock combination with the Red Rider was sort of a hybrid. So I guess the gun itself was inspired from a couple of different versions. So they did share that with me, but I think it was cool. It's a testament to James Wright that that specificity of, you know, with the compass and the stock and the sundial, you know, that, that he knows exactly what he wants, exactly what it has, and it has to be that one. I had one. It was an awesome weapon. <laughs> oh, they're so, so cool. And actually, um, I have, um, Bob gave me, it was a few guns. I don't know how many there were, but I think maybe two or three hero guns, but he gave me one of the guns with a plaque on it, which oh, cool. I still have, and it's it's so oh, cool. cool. Wow. I had a fam- family estate sale after my folks passed away, and we had a whole bunch of guns in there, really, really nice hunting guns. And I had my guns in there with my stepdads, and one of the guns I had in there was the Daisy Red Rider, and that was the gun that sold for more than any of the other guns in the Isn't auction. that interesting? Hmm. So, yeah. so Peter, did uh, the cast and crew, uh, writers, director, and such, did y'all think that the movie was going to become the classic that it has become? No. I mean, I think, like, a lot of things that become, you know, get ingrained into the culture, you, you don't know. I can tell you what was different about that movie than the other ones I had done. Paternity with Burt Reynolds, that Honky Tonk Freeway movie, they were big-budgeted movies with a lot of hype, and I think a lot of talk about how well they were going to do while we were filming. Mm-hmm. Little Cart Before the Horse, maybe. The expectations were high on them. It was a different kind of environment. And then you get to... And they did not perform well. They didn't, you know, quote, catapult me into starhood or any of the things that were being talked about at the time. You get to the Christmas Story set, and you got guys that have been working tirelessly to get this movie set up for 12 years. Bob wound up throwing his salary back into the movie, had to agree to direct other stuff, had a modest budget. So the energy is so much different. And I always talk about it. I always refer to it as like a take your lunch pail to work kind of movie. <laughs> like they were prepared. They knew what they wanted. There was no discussion of, you know, will it be a hit? The focus was just in the moment on trying mm-hmm. to do what you need to do to get the job done. And, you know, it. I got more and more aware of it later as I thought back, but I just remember a big difference on that movie, and I liked it. Back then, even, you know, child labor law was very different, and I lived in Arizona, we were in Canada, so there was a loophole. I worked a lot of hours a day on that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't yeah. bother me. My mom was always the good barometer. You know, if I was tired, Bob would say, okay, we're done, and if I was good, we'd keep on going. <laughs> um but I liked, I liked the work. And so the movie got done. We saw it. We thought it was great. We loved it. Bob did a tremendous job with it. And then it comes out in theaters and it's a modest hit. And then it goes away. And back then, we didn't have a life. There really was no cable and videos since 1983. I think it was Betamax, <laughs> you know, and a couple people had a VHS machine. It was, there was no cable. There certainly wasn't an internet. So. It was sort of like, all right, that was cool. On, on to the next, and then slowly but surely, as 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 video and cable start to become more prominent, this is a title that starts cutting through, and then it kind of got this culty status. Mm-hmm. And then I think when TNT started putting it on the marathon, mm-hmm. 
it started to get this mainstream status and this kind of iconic status that it reached. And, you know, you just don't, you don't ever see it coming. You don't expect it. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it helped my relationship, everybody's relationship with the movie because it was a slow build. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the neat things about this, this is one, and it's one of the weird things about motion pictures, but it has staying power. If you yeah. look back at all of the Christmas pictures, it's a wonderful life, a uh, Christmas story, and others that so many around. Uh, yeah, but these two have risen above the bunch, and I think of all of them, even A Wonderful Life, this one I think is going to have longer legs. Yeah, it's 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 an it's an interesting thing. I think when they're right, they're kind of about timeless things. Um, I look at iTunes a lot around the holidays, and you go to charts, and you see these Christmas movies every year come back. Hmm. And mm-hmm. that's not a phenomenon that a lot of you know in the summer. You're not always seeing blockbuster summer movies from 30 years ago come back. Right. So you know yep. phenomenon about these movies, and there's a good handful of them. I actually started doing a podcast looking at Christmas movies. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And yeah, it's I was been looking great. At it's, it's called The Cinematic Christmas Journey. We do it in partnership with yeah. uh, Spotify so we can have video. And we look back, we get some filmmakers and some actors from these great classic Christmas movies and if if they're too old we just kind of break them down and you start to decode the themes and scenes of these movies and you you see why they really resonate for a long time and the the really powerful messages of acceptance, forgiveness, family. These things that I think we all crave and yearn and want at a time of holidays and there's a relatability to so many of them because the holidays are messy and we go through that messiness as a family but you want all the goodness on the other side of that, mm-hmm. and family's worth moving through. And so it's been fun to, to look back at a lot of them, and I think you know a lot of people ask me why Christmas Story has that staying power, and I think it's a very real, relatable family, which is a hard thing to do because, like, you know, the, the, the old man is tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can tell he's, he's you know, he's... He's one wrong comment away from snapping. Right? <laughs> and the kids are, and it's true. You know, he doesn't make a lot of money. He's fighting the cold. He's got the damn damper blowing smoke in the house, right? The brothers are at each other's throats. But yet, you feel that there's that love in that household. Yeah. So it's very familiar and real. And they go up to the line, but they don't cross it. And it's, it's, it's why so many people have heard the overwhelming comment, I think, to me is, oh, that's my family. Yeah. <laughs> and they see their family in that because yeah. it's true. It's yeah. like, and it's not just the, you know, it's not the Brady's where everything's perfect. Right. And when Mike gets upset, he puts his hand on his hip and says, no, Greg, <laughs> you know, it's nor is Marcia, it just Marcia, some wildly Marcia. dysfunctional family. <laughs> yeah. It was very real. And I think also the yeah. capturing of the Midwest and the weather and the cold mm-hmm. and the things. And, and what Gene Shepard did is he eventized the mundane. So mm-hmm. that movie is not the world is ending, right? It's the simplest things that we move through. He's trying to cook a turkey. They're trying to buy a Christmas tree. Uh, the friends are daring each other to stick a tongue on a pole. The kids are just trying to get to school, and the description is 
It's like deep sea diving. <laughs> You're just trying to walk to school. So they take the simplest things in life oh and make them epic. And that's why I think it's funny and it's relatable because we've all felt the, that way in those same spots. And, and many the times. of the holidays and, and all that. And many times it was you true. Know, <laughs> Yeah, it is true. Another, it feels that way. Yeah. There's um, another iconic thing about that movie. You've got the BB gun, but you've also got the old man's leg lamp. And <laughs> that is so iconic. Yeah, yeah. It's become part of America. Someplace in the, uh, it, Ohio, it erected a huge uh, one uh, leg I lamp heard like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some gargants like those things. That when you get the that you know when you're going to take a road trip, you yeah. get the book, yeah, yeah, and you say, "Well, go look at the world's largest fist." <laughs> yeah, the world's yeah. largest leg lamp. Yeah, oh, that's great. Hey, we got to do another commercial break here on Emil Francis Voices of the West. Peter Billingsley is our guest. He is the guy from uh, Christmas Story, and we'll be right back with much more after these important messages. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year, we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 ski fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting place courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. This is Eb Wilkinson at Wilkinson Wealth Management. If you're within 10 to 15 years of retirement and you're putting off retirement planning, my advice to you is don't do that. Ignoring your retirement planning won't make it go away. It'll just make it worse. Give me a call and let's work on your plan together so you can retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Did uh, you ever try to borrow money on a thousand acres of dust and sand? No. Looks like you folks have a real problem here. This is the Voices of the West. Back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, and Todd Roberts with you. Um, our guest is Peter Billingsley. Bunker, I imagine if we took some uh, sleigh bells or something and uh, did a remix of the High Chaparral theme, it will uh, suffice as a Christmas theme, eh? <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> the high jingle bells riding the western ring. I got to tell you a story, Peter, of, of the, uh, well, we were watching the movie uh, over at uh, our kids, my, my daughter's house, and uh, Christmas Day, we're watching the movie, and <laughs> my grandson, he's, what, 10 at that time, I think, he got a BB gun for Christmas, <laughs> and Oh, he was so excited about it, and uh, Mom was not pleased, of course. 
uh, because, of course, you know, that wasn't supposed to happen. And he takes it outside, and he comes back in a little bit, and there's blood streaming down his face, and we just started laughing. Oh my gosh. And, and it's like, oh, that's and, so funny. And, and he's crying, you know. It's like, you didn't shoot out your eye. No. I don't know what happened. A, a ricochet or something caught him. But That's hilarious. Yeah, I know. She, she, she was it so pissed. Definitely happens. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> she was so pissed. <laughs> So Peter, you still is, have your pink. Peter, you still have your pink bunny pajamas. <laughs> yeah, there was only one of those, and um, they did give them to me a lot of times back then. You would kind of collect those things as keepsakes, and I keep that in a humidity-controlled vault. Told um, <laughs> it's a little bit valuable, so I'm like, well, I guess we better put more safe. One day, it's roadshow. Here I come. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. So, Peter, is the scene uh, in the Chinese restaurant, is any of that improv or is it all scripted? Because it's one of the best moments yes. of the film. Yes. Yeah, you know, Bob Clark was great at doing what a lot of, I think, good filmmakers do, which is sometimes not always informing the actors what's going to happen <laughs> so that you get a very real reaction yeah. when it does. Yeah. And, you know, he did stuff with us where he kept us separated from the bullies. He didn't kind of want us playing between takes to keep that genuine fear alive. And in that scene in particular, and I think it was Melinda that he uh, wanted the most surprise, and you can tell from her reaction, didn't know that the duck was going to come out with its head on. Um, and so her utter shock and gasp. I thought she was expecting, like, when you go to a Chinese restaurant, they slice the duck, you know, it's right. in slices and pieces. It's like, okay, we ordered Peking duck. It's on a platter. But an entirely brown, crispy duck with its head on. Uh, so that reaction is genuine. It's pretty cool because you can see the camera's actually outside the window. And it's really a wonder. And it's just, right, sort of, the camera's just slowly moving. And um, so we're in this environment where there's really no crew members, so you kind of feel that it's real. And so that reaction is as genuine as it gets, and it's, I'm, not, I'm not surprised why it kept it. And then I don't think that he told Darren that he was going to chop the head off. Um, so you see his reaction. So it's, it's kind of fun when you do that. Um, it was a similar thing, I think, um, Bless his heart, and he's not traumatized by this. But uh, Ian Petrella, who played my little brother Randy, hated that slide in Higby's. Mm. Did not want to go down it. And finally <laughs> pushed him down with the cameras rolling. So when he lands and starts crying, it's That's completely real. real. Yeah. yeah, completely real. Oh, wow. And now he, yeah, you know, after that he's like, "Oh, that's not so bad." He played on it for the rest of the day, and then he said to Bob, "You know, do you, do you want to take two? And Bob's like, "Oh no, we got it. <laughs> We're on good. Let's go in the movie." So Peter Billingsley. So, you know, if anybody wants to visit that Chinese restaurant, if it's still there in Toronto, it's on 744 Gerard Street. <laughs> and so, look at the, it's bowling, which is so smart. It was like they took over a bowling alley. Ah, uh, yeah. And, the, and they dimmed the W, mm -hmm. so it becomes bowling. Oh, cool. Peter Billingsley, <laughs> you are working right? on... So it's clever. There's all these, it's a, very smart. There's all this stuff that's just kind of in the background. That is so cool. Um, other things uh, that you're cool. working on uh, at this moment now, can you talk about any of your projects? Yeah, well, fortunately, we're out of the stripes, uh, which, you know, 
shut things down for us for a very long time. Continuing to do the podcast right now, Cinematic Christmas Journey, which has been fun, and those are airing. I'm finishing up a couple of those, and those have just started to drop. And we finished shooting a film uh, that we're in the process of uh, it's an independent film that we're in the process of selling, and uh, one we'll be excited to share with you guys a little more called Broke. It's kind of a modern-day Western about a bareback bronc rider, and it stars Wyatt Russell and Dennis Quaid. Hmm. And it's, uh, it's very cool, and we shot it in Montana in both the winter and the summer. It's uh, about a bronc rider who gets trapped in a kind of whiteout snowstorm, hmm. finds a cabin, and reflects back on his life. We shot at a lot of rodeos, and it was, it was a very cool experience. It was fun. It's a smaller budgeted movie, but it's a really beautiful movie that shows off a lot of the landscape and um, has a lot of horse work and a lot of stunts in it. So, are, are you more comfortable you know, behind? Hang, hang, hang on, are you more familiar with behind the camera or in front of the camera? What, what's your preference? Well, I've been fortunate to be able to to move between it. You know, last year. It was at 30, this is the 40th anniversary of A Christmas Story this year. Last year, 39th anniversary, we released the sequel to A Christmas Story, A Christmas Story Christmas, which I starred in, produced, and co-wrote. And it was great. We did that with Warner Brothers, and it got a tremendous re- reception, and we were very, very happy with the movie. So that was kind of the most significant acting role that I had done in a while, mm-hmm. um, other than kind of smaller parts when I popped into things. So... I don't know. It's it's sort of hard to say, and it would like to continue to move through it and kind of do all, you know, whether it's direct, produce, act. It's been it's been really nice to be able to jump in into different parts of it. That's cool. You know, there's you have a close friendship and partnership with Vince Vaughn, and yes. I believe it started with the CBS School Book Special, The Fourth Man, which yes. I saw. I remember seeing it. It was really. Great. Very intense film. Oh, I, I can remember the Little House you did. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yes, that, uh, and, that, and that was with Jason Bateman, yeah. Uh, you know, but I was thinking, you know, you and Vince have a very long uh, relationship. You partner on a lot of stuff. Uh, how did how did your friendship develop? And and uh, just tell us about because he's an interesting man in himself. He's just the most wonderful guy. Uh, he was the best man at my wedding and is just a tremendous person and such a talented guy. We met on that. It was an after-school special on steroids. <laughs> and those were those afternoon things. As you said, they were pretty intense. I played the guy on steroids. Vince uh, played my best friend. Um, we had some great special effects on that. When I was in a T-shirt normal, that was me not on steroids. When I rolled up the sleeves... Two turns, that was me on steroids. And it actually surprisingly looked pretty good. It looked a little more buff. Uh, we were friends. He had moved out from Chicago shortly before then, was in Los Angeles, starting his acting career. I was starting to really want to transition into behind-the-scenes stuff. We were 18. And, um, you know, what I loved about him, it's an after-school special. You know, some people laugh at it, but... Hey, it was a job. He wanted to take it seriously. So we got together outside of work and said, if we're supposed to be best friends, let's hang out and kind of get to know each other. So that feels like there's kind of a chemistry on screen. And we just hit it off. You know, he was just a great guy. He'd come out from uh, Chicago. We liked a lot of the same stuff. And um, 
kind of made each other laugh and it started a great friendship that, you know, obviously his, he went on and, you know, he was started consistently working and then Swingers was a great breakout for him, which was in 96. And then we started producing stuff together, acting some things together and continue both working together and the friendship. You know, that, that just kind of loses on us throughout 1993 and you did Arcade. And that's where I think that's where you started getting your really intense about doing behind the scenes stuff. It's so interesting you bring that up. <laughs> uh, no one's ever brought that up, but it, it, it's a seminal movie for me. It's kind of a low budget um, sort of. Uh, there was a company, Full Moon. I think they were kind of like um, the Roger Corman movies after Roger Corman, sort of smaller budget genre films. I didn't really want to do the movie, but. Um, Bob Clark, director of A Christmas Story, was a tremendous mentor. And I said to him, hey, I really want to transition. What should I do? Like, where should I focus? And he said, get into the edit room. That's where you're really going to learn how movies are made, what you did right on set, what you did wrong, and how you put all the pieces together. It's, you know, it's, really, it's really where the meal is cooked. So I said on Arcade, all right, I'll do the film, but I wanted apprenticeship to edit the movie. Now, they're probably looking at me like, oh, great, the star wants to get in the edit room. And, you know, try to pick his hero takes. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I just wanted to get in there and learn. Mm. And mm-hmm. it was such a low-budget movie, they didn't have an assistant on the movie. So the day I arrived, I was promoted from apprentice to assistant. I'm like, hey, this is going great so far. <laughs> <laughs> so I was there. Yeah, I was like, wow, you don't have a lot of money. And he's like, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was Dean Goodhill, who was an editor who um, is very, very talented was one on the team that cut the fugitive and so i just started kind of learning and then i moved through post-production and started my education kind of behind the scenes as i really wanted to learn kind of from the ground up i knew the rhythms of sets very well having grown up on them but mm-hmm. this was a whole end of the business that i didn't really understand okay we got to do our well, final sacred com- fire would be a different experience for you yeah. because that was your Kind of like your kickoff for a job, right? It was a short film that I directed. Same thing. I mean, that was a crazy one. I did that. We did it with the tiniest crew. Again, it was that was a little more to kind of touch everything and just it was all for me about learning, taking reps, um, doing the things that I didn't have to do as an actor that were outside of it, and really gaining confidence and an understanding of how all these different aspects moved and worked. Okay, so, we got to do our the time in my life. We got to do our uh, mm-hmm. last commercial. And you won commercial. the Golden Scroll Award, too. There you go. We got to do our yeah. final commercial break here on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts with you. Peter Billingsley, our guest. We'll be right back. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were built. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms. 
but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management, where we manage money for gun owners. When people turn 50, something miraculous happens. They start to get serious about retirement planning. They've done very well so far and want to be certain they power into the retirement they've earned. Let me guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Ed Wilkinson, at 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Read classic Western comics anytime at voicesofthewest.net. Hello, I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right, it's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. I was just in the general store, and I was never so aggravated in my life as when I heard one of them Easterners tell old man Simpson that he's a-packing and leaving these parts. Because a man's life ain't worth a second-hand jaw tobacco. This is the Voices of the West. Oh, say the snowman was a jolly happy soul With a corncob pipe and a button nose And his eyes made out of coal we are back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts with you. Of course, that's the great Gene Autry and uh, Frosty the Snowman there, getting into the Christmas spirit here on our program. Uh, our guest is Peter Billingsley, um, actor, writer, producer, director, jack-of-all-trades, and probably master of all of them. Um, he was also in a movie called the, A Christmas Story that has become quite the cult following. Uh, Todd or Bunker, do you want to do any follow-ups here? Well, I, I have to ask what did the you question do in the Christmas Bunker? story, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you blink, you might miss me. Yeah, that's what I thought. Peter, i got to ask you uh, the question of how difficult was it to work with the dogs who steal the turkeys? <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, fortunately, I didn't have a lot of screen time with them because they were, you know, they're, they were a bit wild. I thought <laughs> they're trained, but when you put a cluster of dogs like that together, some oh, of the training yeah. goes out the window. Right. You look at that moment where they steal the turkey, two of those dogs start going after each other. Uh, and that's totally real. So I just remember kind of 
standing off to the side like if you don't really need me. Step Maybe away I'll wait slowly. Over here. <laughs> Did they really pin a pork chop on you so they'd chase you? <laughs> you know, it, we used them in the sequel that we did, and you have to. We found some bloodhounds, and you do. It's 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 kind of a trick. If you put the treats in your pocket, they'll go nuts and they'll start jumping on you. Uh, and then the trick is, how do you get them off? So if they're they're well trained, but they're still animals, and they and they definitely you need a breakaway pocket. Yeah, right, a breakaway yes. pocket, totally. Or you stunt cats. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. All right, Peter, uh, it's time for shameless promotion. Uh, talk about whatever you'd like here for the next few moments. Oh, well, we've uh, we've covered it. It's kept me busy. <laughs> Certainly Christmas movies. I really enjoy doing the podcast. I know you guys obviously are in that world. It's 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 fun because like I enjoy this interview. It's 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 longer form. And I think that's more my. Mm-hmm. Rhythm and I've done I think it's five Christmas movies now. I also had a small cameo in Elf, which was uncredited. And so it's Christmas movies are something I know a little bit about. So having a chance to break them down on a podcast has been a lot of fun. That is, that is cool. That is way. Oh, cool. Peter. Then if you continue in that vein, uh, any chance of uh, breaking down the Hallmark Christmas movies? Will I be that, doing that? That kind of uh, <laughs> No, you know. I, it, look, well. It, You'd have a full-time job. They do so many of them, and they do such a nice job with them. But to cherry-pick one of the classics, yeah, I, I'll I'll tell you what. I'm going to float that up the flagpole. <laughs> do you do you have a particular favorite of those? Well, there's one. There's an interesting one. It's kind it's kind of different. It's called a a Christmas ranch romance. And it's, it came out, I think, last year, but it has a different spin in that the young lady, the, the uh, ad executive, comes home to the family ranch in North Carolina because it's in financial problems. And while she's there, one of the ranch hands, she finds very, very attractive and is attracted mm, to this yes. ranch hand. But the ranch hand is another woman. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, different. And yeah, definitely different. But uh, I guess love still finds a way. Yep, there you go. Uh, as she moves through the ranch. Yeah, and then I have. If you're gonna, if you want to really look for some, look for some western Christmas movies, and I'll recommend uh, uh, Stinky Flanagan, Stubby Pringles, uh, Stubby Pringles Christmas, uh, mm-hmm. a uh, miracle. Miracle in the Wilderness and Miracle at Sage Creek. That's a good tree to start with. Sage okay, Creek great. With, uh, Sage Creek is with David Carradine. He plays as, as kind of a Scrooge-like guy. And it's 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 a dark but very, uh, at the end, very uplifting movie. Great. Well, that's, you know, one of the things I like about them is a lot of them, you do start with someone who's maybe doesn't have a lot of light in his life, but by the end of the movie mm-hmm. has certainly found some hope. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all well, about. That sounds great. This has been a wonderful experience. Peter, Peter we thank, you, thank so you so much for joining us. I really, really us. appreciate we, it. We still have to ask Peter the most important question. Oh, yeah. Go for it. Peter, your favorite Western. Yes. Favorite Western. I will give you two because one's somewhat more modern. Unforgiven. Um, mm. I just returned to a lot. Big fan of Clint Eastwood and his work, and 
um, I think also what that film represented to him um, in sort of reconciling some of the films which he had done. Mm-hmm. Um, it works on a lot of levels, and Gene Hackman is just so good in that. It's so eminently watchable. And yeah. probably if I'm going back a little further, because probably was one of the first Westerns I was exposed to was The Wild Bunch. Hmm. Ooh. And again, Ooh. I think just the idea of, you know, I, I like kind of deeper themes that are pulling through movies and the idea of the world changing in that film and, and, and sort of, you know, where the West was really going at that time. Um, mm-hmm. Blended with... Cool that kind of coming to terms with where you are in your life, but also the filmmaking is so great in both. So um, I'm giving you a newer one. If I had to pick one, probably un- Unforgiven, but um, I'm giving you an old an old and a new. That's all right. How would you rate The Searchers? Oh, I mean, it, here's the thing that you guys know about Westerns, <laughs> um, right, because you deep dive on them. It, it, once you start looking and going, it's it's shocking how good so many are, yep. I think. It's, it, it, it's eternal. It, that's what I mean. Yeah. So, of course, it's tremendous. So it's very hard to rate or to say favorite. And it's, you know, I'm so glad. We always used to hear in Hollywood, and they still say it, oh, Westerns don't travel. And they would try to be, in, in more modern times, reasons not to make them. But then... <laughs> You go make a good one, and it does travel. And you travel the world, and you see how cowboy culture yep. is, is uh, beloved across the planet in yeah. places mm-hmm. that you've been told it doesn't really exist. Yeah, right. Yet it does. Mm-hmm. And Western photography, and uh, it, look at the power of Yellowstone, even and how it travels. Sure. It's just, it's truly endless. And so it's 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 never something that I really subscribe to that idea that westerns don't travel or this won't um i think it's quite the opposite i think there is just a love and a romanticism of the west that has gone on for a very long time and is going to continue for a very very long time to come peter billingsley thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it and uh, merry christmas sir yes merry christmas harry bunker and todd thank you guys for having me on today and that's it for this edition of the program Um, We'll be back uh, next week. Our guest, D.T. Christensen. He runs an outfit called OldWest.org. We'll find out more about that. Thanks for listening. 80 80 Christmas stories. (laughs)